Want to listen ad-free? Hit the Patreon link in our show notes, our Instagram bio, or head over to patreon.com slash the Murder Diaries pod right now to become a patron and listen ad-free. You'll also get other content like a bonus episode every month and a shout out for joining. Welcome to another episode of The Murder Diaries. I'm Natalie. And I'm Paige. In the quiet gated community of Great Waters, Eatonton, Georgia, 85 miles east of Atlanta, lived Russell and Shirley Dermond. As per their website, Great Waters is part of Reynolds Lake Oakney, a luxury golf and lakefront community boasting 12,000 acres of lakefront property, six golf courses, 11 restaurants, as well as recreational and culinary amenities, befitting a world-class private club. This was the perfect retirement location for the Dermans, as Russell was an avid golfer and Shirley was a keen gardener. With a crime rate of zero, they felt safe and could enjoy their days in their hard-earned dream home. The safety they and the community felt was shattered when, in 2014, Russell was found dead in his home and Shirley was nowhere to be found. This is their story. Used to think it's in my head But I'm walking with the dead Russell Joseph Derman was born on June 6, 1925 in Hackensack, New Jersey, the only child of parents Russell and Margaret. Shirley Bell Wilcox was born on July 7, 1926 in Maywood, New Jersey to parents Alan and Phyllis. Shirley was also an only child. The pair met at their New Jersey high school as teenagers, but after high school, they went to different colleges. Shirley to Barnard College in New York City and Russell to Fairleigh Dickinson University in North Jersey. Shirley graduated and became a secretary. However, Russell's education was put on the back burner when in the mid-1940s, he joined the Navy to fight in the tail end of World War II. When Russell returned from the war, he finished his schooling and began working at General Time Corp. He was a director of information services for the clock company and his position required him to travel both domestically and internationally. Shirley and Russell married on December 15, 1950, in a Christmas-themed wedding. In 1953, they welcomed their first son, Mark. They would have two more sons, Keith and Bradley, and a daughter, Leslie, in the following years. Once she became a mother, Shirley became a stay-at-home mom, caring for their kids in their New Jersey home. Russell and Shirley adored being parents, and they loved spending time with their children. Time ticked by, and the kids grew up. When the 1980s rolled around, Russell decided he wanted to leave something behind for his family, for his children and his future grandkids. After decades working for General Time Corp, Russell semi-retired and moved the family to Georgia, where he got into the fast food business. He purchased and managed a chain of 16 Hardee's restaurants. And for those who don't know, Hardee's is also known as Carl's Jr. in some areas of the country. With the business going well, in 1994, Russell and Shirley purchased a parcel of land nearly an acre in a gated community by Lake Oakney. The Dermans' land was on the lake shore, and that meant that they could have boat access. The gated community sat on a peninsula, which is a piece of land jutting out and surrounded by water on three sides. There was a guard station at the entrance to the community to ensure only residents and authorized visitors entered. Over the next five years, the Dermans built their 3,000-square-foot dream home. The home overlooked a calm and secluded cove and had incredible views. While the surrounding thick trees afforded them privacy, 
The backyard was beautifully landscaped and gently sloped down to a dock at the water's edge. For a time, they had a boat at the dock, but they eventually sold it for some unknown reasons. Once their home was completed, Russell and Shirley moved in and started enjoying their retirement. Having been religious all their lives, they joined the Oakney Community Church and became active members. Unfortunately, tragedy struck the family in August of 2000, when their eldest son Mark was killed in Atlanta. He was shot three times in the neck and torso while purchasing drugs, and his injuries were fatal. It was Mark's 47th birthday. There was another shooting victim, a friend of Mark's who survived his injuries, and he was able to ID the killer, Shattuck Hinnett. As a result, Shattuck Hinnett was arrested the following day and charged with murder. While their surviving children lived out of state in North Carolina and Florida, they saw them frequently. The Derman family grew with Russell and Shirley becoming the proud grandparents of nine grandkids. When not spending time with their children and grandchildren who visited as often as they could, Shirley liked to garden, play bridge, and do crossword puzzles. Russell enjoyed reading, walking, and playing golf. The couple weren't wealthy, but they were really comfortable and they never advertised their financial position. They were well-liked in their community, with neighbors saying they were a sweet couple and no one had a bad word to say about them. In 2014, tragedy would once again strike the Dermond family. On May 1st, Russell ran errands, going to the bank, the supermarket to get bread and cucumbers, and he stopped by the in-store pharmacy counter to collect some medication for Shirley. Shirley was due to have cataract surgery and those medicines that Russell collected pertained to that procedure. Then later that afternoon, Russell spoke to his son, Brad, on the phone. It was a normal catch-up chat. The next day, a neighbor said that they saw Russell at the community's golf course walking. However, this has never been confirmed by cameras for reasons we'll go into soon. Although he was nearing 90, Russell was very active, so he may very well have been out walking that afternoon. The mail was delivered around 4.30 p.m. and it was cleared from the box. The day after that, Russell and Shirley were expected at a Kentucky Derby viewing party, but they never showed or sent their apologies. Friends called the Germans' phones, but there was no answer, and neighbors noticed that the mailbox wasn't being cleared. Friends and neighbors kept calling on May 4th and 5th to no avail. Then on May 6th, the neighbors who hosted the Kentucky Derby party, a couple in their 70s, decided to go over to the secluded house to check if the Germans were okay. When they arrived, they found the door unlocked. They entered the house noting that there were no signs of forced entry. So they likely assumed the couple had left the door unlocked either accidentally or on purpose. They looked around the house for Russell or Shirley and what they found will be etched in their brains for the rest of their lives. In the garage laying between the cars in a pool of dried blood was 88-year-old Russell's headless body. The neighbors quickly called the police. They'll hear the audio of the 911 call play right now. Patton County 911. Yes, I have an emergency. Okay. I think I have somebody dead. Okay, what's the address, ma'am? Uh, sure, what's the address here? I don't know. Uh, we're it, in Great Water. Is it Drive? Yes, Drive. Okay, and who is it? Uh, the Dermans. Okay, and are, you're a neighbor or something? Yes, yes, I just came to check on them. They've been missing for about four days. Where, uh, are they in the house? Yes, yes. And what's your name, ma'am? I'm Peggy Wynn. Okay. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh. Oh. Okay. They're, they're both dead, Ms. Wynn? Uh, did you find both of them? No. No. 
Okay. No, it's just one. Okay. I don't know where the other one is. Okay. All right. I'll get you a deputy in the ambulance over there just in case, okay? Yes, please. Okay. Please. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. As you heard in the 911 call, the neighbors only found one body, and there was no sign of Shirley. When police arrived, they searched the house and grounds for her, but there was no trace of her. Investigators noted that there was no evidence of forced entry to the home and that the inside of the house was pristine, with no signs of a struggle save for a slightly askew lampshade, an unmade bed in the main bedroom, and Shirley's USA Today crossword puzzle open on the kitchen table. Nothing pointed towards a robbery. Both the couple's phones were in the house and jewelry appeared untouched. Their cars were both in the garage. There was no ransom note, so it didn't appear Shirley had been kidnapped. There also weren't any signs of any weapons that could have been used. With no sign of Shirley and an immaculate house, investigators set to work looking at what evidence they did have, and it was all in the garage. Investigators found towels around Russell's body, which they believed were placed there to stop blood from seeping out from under the garage door. His body was lying on his robe and he was dressed in a t-shirt and boxer shorts, his usual pajamas. His slippers were found next to his body. On the garage floor behind one of the cars was a blood stain that appeared to be made by something round being placed there, presumably Russell's head. The lack of blood spatter indicated that he was dead before his head was removed and testing would reveal gunshot residue on his collar. During the autopsy, it was determined that Russell's head had been removed with a, quote, a single clean cut. It was entirely possible the actual cause of death was a gunshot wound to the head, as suggested by the residue on his collar. But without his head to confirm, the cause of death was listed as cranial cerebral trauma. According to a report in the Atlanta Constitution, police speculated that Russell's head was removed to ensure a bullet wasn't able to be tested and traced. Sheriff Sill said, we assume there is a likelihood that he was shot in the head, but we don't know that because we don't have the head. Russell's feet had blood stains, and a trail of blood was smeared between the door to the garage and where his body lay. His hands were also bruised and bloody. On his left index finger, there was a wound with strands of sandy blonde hair, the same color as Shirley's. Investigators wondered if the hair could give insight into what happened before Russell's death. Hundreds of fingerprints, along with hair and tissue samples, were collected from the house. However, testing revealed no matches to anyone in the police database. Police had secured the crime scene. However, they wondered if the garage was where Russell was killed. Despite the gunshot residue on his collar, there was no evidence of a bullet hole in the garage. It was possible that he had been shot elsewhere and moved to the garage where he was beheaded. Investigators narrowed down the timeline and believed that Russell was killed between 4.30 p.m. on May 2nd, after the mail had been delivered since the letterbox had been cleared, and before 4 p.m. on May 3rd, when they were due to be at the Kentucky Derby party. Nearly 24 hours is a pretty large time frame, so investigators had their work cut out for them. In an effort to see if anyone unusual had been in the community, they checked the community's security cameras, and they found that they weren't working, something no one had noticed until the police asked to check them. This is why the sighting of Russell walking on the golf course could never be confirmed. However, the errands he ran the day before were captured on the store's CCTV, and therefore those movements could be verified. Although the community was gated and a guard station sat on the only road in and out, one of the Durban sons told the Macon Telegraph that visitors' license plates weren't routinely recorded. Sheriff Stills, who was in charge of the case, also told the union recorder that cars with service company logos, such as cleaners and gardeners, were often waved through without a second thought. 
Although the German house was always clean and tidy, they maintained the home themselves and told friends and family that they didn't employ any outside help. So there wouldn't be any reason for regular maintenance workers such as cleaners or gardeners to be at the house. Maintenance workers that were in the area were questioned anyway and given polygraphs, and there was no sign any of them were involved. Additionally, there was no way of knowing if anyone had approached the Derman property from the water, an avenue that wasn't monitored. They had a boat launch and the killers could have used it to arrive and leave undetected. Sheriff Sills spoke to the media saying it was the most baffling case he had seen in his four-decade career. Sills clarified in an interview with the Macon Telegraph that he believed Shirley had been abducted and she hadn't been part of Russell's murder. For one, the couple were still happy and in love. And for another, Russell's body had been moved after he was killed. And that would require more strength than would be expected of an 87-year-old woman. The FBI was called in to help with the investigation. Because of how Russell's body was found, they were looking for signs of organized crime. After going through the couple's financial and phone records, as well as conducting many, many interviews, they concluded that Russell wasn't a victim of organized crime. Even the Dermans' children's lives were scrutinized in case what happened to their parents was an act of retaliation against one of them. Then investigators looked into a connection between Russell and Shirley and the murder of their eldest son and it was found that the two incidents weren't related. The rest of the Derman children were as clean as their parents, and there wasn't anything in their lives that connected to the crime. So an FBI profiler weighed in on the case and said that they believed two or three people were involved and due to the nature of the crime, it wasn't their first murder. The profiler told the Atlanta Constitution that beheadings were very uncommon and were almost always personal. The profiler added that taking Russell's head makes a tremendous statement. They concluded by saying that investigators were looking for a male knife and gun enthusiast, which didn't help in narrowing in on a suspect. And due to the nature of the gated community, Sheriff Sills didn't believe they were looking for a traveling serial killer. If Shirley was taken for financial reasons, there would be a ransom note. The Derman children were cooperative and answered questions about their parents' habits to help investigators build a picture of who they were. The children said their parents were religious about locking their doors, even after moving to a community where the crime rate was zero. Everyone who spoke of the couple had complimentary things to say about them, and investigators couldn't find a motive. The Derman children wondered if their parents had been targeted due to their nice house, or perhaps it was a case of mistaken identity because they couldn't think of a single person who would wish harm on their parents. Despite numerous theories, every angle was a dead end. While Russell's death was being investigated, Shirley was being searched for. The lake, which is shaped like a tree branch rather than a round lake, was dragged and sonar was used, neither turning up a body or evidence. Cadaver dogs were used to search the dense woods around the house, but once again, nothing eventuated. As the days turned into a week, the Derman children started to lose hope that their mother would be found alive. Ten days after Russell's body was discovered, Shirley's was found by two fishermen on Lake Oconee. While the water was around 50 feet deep in the middle of the lake, there were trees and debris that sat only a few inches from the surface. There, on top of a tree and in just eight inches of water, is where Shirley's body was found. The spot was around five miles from the Derman home. Shirley's body was in a blue mesh bag, weighed down with two 30-pound red concrete blocks. Investigators don't believe that the killers intended for her body to be found. However, some reporting states that experienced killers would have known that the 60 pounds of concrete blocks wouldn't be enough to keep a body submerged. During the autopsy, the medical examiner found blunt force trauma to Shirley's head that was circular, suggesting a hammer or something similar. 
The trauma caused by at least two impacts fractured Shirley's skull and caused a hemorrhage in the brain. The medical examiner found no other signs of trauma on her body, but they did find something else. They believe that after her death, Shirley's ankles were tightly bound with paracord before she was put into the lake. Now that Shirley's body was found in the lake, investigators once again wondered if the killers had accessed the home via a boat. Because no one saw a strange boat leaving the Dermans property and no one saw Shirley's body being dropped off the side, they believed that it happened at night under the cover of darkness. This also fueled the theory that the Dermans had been targeted as the killers would have needed to know exactly where they were going in the dark. By the end of May, Sheriff Still said the Dermans were probably targeted because of something that they had or something people thought they had or some sort of extortion that didn't go through. He thought that the case was one tip away from being solved. But a month later, there still weren't any credible leads. So Sheriff Sills announced a $30,000 reward for any information that led to the killers. This was the first time in his career that he had a case where a reward was offered, but he felt it was essential to getting the information he needed to solve the case. The sheriff also opened a reward fund to the public, saying the higher the reward, the better the chances of someone coming forward. And within a few days, the public had added $15,000. And by August, the fund was at $45,000. But at the same time, the tips had all but dried up and the case was starting to go cold. Sheriff Sills told the union recorder about one of the biggest issues with the investigation up until that point, saying, we don't know where all the crime scenes were in this case, and that's been a big problem. He continued, one was the water where Mrs. Derman's body was recovered which certainly isn't the best crime scene. And number two is the house where Mr. Derwin's head was removed post-mortem. The sheriff also believes there's a third crime scene because of Shirley's injuries. Let me explain. If she was killed in the home, there should and would be evidence left behind like blood spatter. But there's nothing there. Because of this and the fact that Shirley was found in the lake, he theorizes that she could have been killed on the boat. And it's also more than possible that Russell was killed elsewhere and was returned to the house after his death since they strongly suspected he had been shot, but there was no evidence of that in the home apart from the residue on his t-shirt. Sheriff Sills said, they could have been killed in the same place, but obviously I don't know. And the only certain evidence is that after Mr. German was dead, his head was severed in that garage. That's the only evidence in that house. While our listeners know we don't usually attend to outlandish theories, preferring to stick to facts, we feel it's important for this theory to be acknowledged so that it can be debunked. There were some theories floating around about one of the Derman children being involved, with the motive being the rather large inheritance that would be left after the deaths of their parents. Sheriff Sills was quick to poke holes in that theory. Firstly, all three of the surviving kids had alibis and past polygraphs, and they were all very cooperative with the investigation. Secondly, if an inheritance was the motive, why hide Shirley's body? Russell and Shirley were each other's executor, and without Shirley's body, she couldn't be declared dead and the assets would be frozen, not passed on to the children. This theory was a reach, and one that three grieving family members didn't need added to their plate at such a horrible time in their lives. The longer cases remain unsolved, the less manpower is assigned to them. It's a sad fact, but it happens. New cases pop up and the resources once given are redistributed. And that's what happened with Russell and Shirley's investigation. By the six-month anniversary, only Sheriff Sills and one other detective were still working on the case. But that only makes Sheriff Sills more determined to get it solved, saying, I go to sleep every night thinking about this case, and I wake up every morning thinking about this case. The two went through thousands of pages of bank statements and phone records with a fine-tooth comb. They continued to interview friends, family, acquaintances, and former business associates from before Russell retired. 
No new leads came up. None of the polygraphs showed any deception. There were no crime connections. And there was still no clear motive for the murders. Over time, Sheriff Sill's theory of what happened evolved. He suggested that the killers access the property in a vehicle. As is usual with cases that haven't been resolved, the updates and news reports slowed. There was just nothing new to report. Updates came yearly and then every couple of years, repeating the same information as the years before, sometimes with a kernel of new information. Then at the one-year anniversary, Sheriff Sills said that there were some developments around a valuable piece of forensic evidence. However, he declined to clarify or comment further about what the evidence was or how it linked to the murders. He said that he believed the killers knew the Germans and had been to the house prior to the murders. He continued by saying that while Russell's death seemed to be the work of seasoned or professional killers, Shirley's did not. He said that a professional killer doesn't beat a woman with a bat or whatever she was beaten with, then tie her down with inadequate anchoring. The sheriff has publicly stated that he's very frustrated by this case, saying he'd never not solved a murder in his 40 years in law enforcement, and he's even taken down a cult. He's so determined to solve the case that he's canceled vacations and stopped his hobbies so he can devote more time to the case. After two years, Sheriff Sill still hadn't given up, saying that he follows every lead that comes in. He watches for similar crimes, those involving elderly victims and beheadings, and checks in to see if they could have been committed by the same person who killed the Dermans. He was still working with the FBI, and he had a message for the killers. Don't for a second think we are not pursuing you. At the five-year anniversary, Sheriff Sills gave another statement to the Macon Telegraph, saying that he was leaning towards a theory of extortion or robbery, but the Dermans didn't have what the killers demanded. Then, in May of 2021, there was a new update in the case. It was reported in Lake Oconee News that there was additional evidence in the form of cell phone data that hadn't been loaded into an FBI program that hadn't existed in 2014. Sheriff Sills hoped that the cell phone data would be another piece of the puzzle and would get him another step closer to solving the case. The cell phone information showed who was in the area near the Dermans' property around the time of the murders. However, it didn't show anyone suspicious or with a criminal history. The last update came in May of this year, 2023. Sheriff Sill said that some DNA evidence was being run by the FBI, but he was realistic about how helpful the testing would be. He said that there may not be enough DNA present to run the sample through the national database. And even if there is, there's a possibility that the DNA will come back as a match to the Dermans and not the mystery killers. At the time of this recording, the murders of Russell and Shirley Derman are still unsolved and the case is open. Sheriff Sills is determined to get the case solved and bring Russell and Shirley's killers to justice. He believes the right tip could warm the case up and lead to a resolution. The money that was raised early in the investigation is still available and it totals $45,000. If you have any information, please call the Putnam County Sheriff's Office at 706-485-8557. Again, that's 706-485-8557. Don't forget to follow us on all of our socials at the Murder Diaries Pod and the Murder Diaries Podcast Request at gmail.com. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.